Well, hey, Mosaic. It's good to see you guys. It's been a while. It's been a while. I've been, I've been sitting in the seats with you the last few weeks and just absorbing. And I'm excited because uh, I don't know about you. I'm not a science guy. I'm just not. That was like my least favorite subject ever, you know? So like when, when Bill starts talking about chemistry and quantum mechanics, I just get a nosebleed and want to take a nap. Um, so I'm excited because this last series, you know, really has been, I mean, and for some of you have been geeking out over it and you're a total nerd and um, I love you. You got a better GPA than I did. But, uh, but on this, in this series, we're, we're kind of swinging the pendulum the other way um, because the Psalms, I, I, I love the Psalms for so many different reasons. And the Psalms, I think you would be hard pressed uh, to find another piece of literature, let alone sacred literature, that is more honest and more raw um, than the Psalms. Um, the writers of the Psalms pull absolutely no punches. They don't try to sugarcoat the human experience. They don't, want to, they don't try to make the spiritual journey sound easier or better than it is. I mean, all the pain and the toil and the struggle and the doubt and the sorrow and all of it uh, is there. And at times, it's, it's painfully honest but it is incredibly, incredibly beautiful. You know, the Psalms were, one of the unique things about the Psalms is the Psalms were songs. And they were songs that were sung in the temple as part of the worship for hundreds of years. And so Jesus and many of his disciples grew up singing these songs. They would have had many of them, most of them, memorized. And so it's really unique as we look at the Psalms because, uh, you know, for Jesus and many of his disciples, it would have shaped um, many, much of their thinking about who God is and, and how life works. And, and it gave them language uh, when it came to prayer. So you hear Jesus oftentimes like um, reaffirming the Psalms or expanding on them or speaking them and quoting them. Uh, and so, so journeying in the Psalms is like, an, it's an incredibly, uh, it's an incredibly beautiful and ancient uh, practice. So I'm really, really excited. And the subtitle, um, as Mike said, uh, for our series is The Journey of the Soul. And the Psalms are, were written um, from the soul to the soul. They're written from the soul of God and the souls of men. And it speaks really to the soul. And so as we begin this journey this morning, where I want to begin is really talking about what we're talking about when we use the word soul. You know, because like Mike said, it's a mysterious kind of idea. It can feel intangible. Um, thanks to film and various things, we have lots of different ideas about what the soul is. Um, you know, I heard when some people think of the psalm, Aretha Franklin, right? That's actually where my mind went to, you know, when I think of a soul, because it's probably the most tangible thing that, that I can hold on to when I think about the soul. And so I want to talk about this. And if I'm really showing all my cards, I think for many of us, um, we have a lot of misunderstanding uh, when it comes to how God has created you, your soul, and everything that the soul is. And as a result, we don't really know how to care for our soul. Or even to interpret some of the experience that we go through and how to actually invite Jesus into all that and give him uh, control and to see our soul transformed. Uh, and so I, I want to start there because it's kind of like with a car. Like, I, I don't know anything about cars. Um, in fact, I don't even know how to change the oil, all right? Believe it or not, uh, this is true. Um, nobody ever taught me how to do that, and I've never really been interested, if I'm really honest. You know, but like, if you're going to care for your car by your, yourself, right, you would have to know what a transmission is and how it works, or what a carburetor is and how it works. And it's the same way with the soul. We've got to know what it is and, and how it works. In fact, John Calvin, when he's talking about the Psalms, he actually called the Psalms an anatomy, an anatomy of the soul. 
And he went on to, to talk about what the soul is, and he says this, or I'm sorry, he talks about the psalm specifically, and he says this, he says, the Holy Spirit has drawn all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. All lurking places are discovered, and the heart is brought out into the light. All right, and so that's what we're aiming for uh, in this series, because, because, um, we can't overestimate how important what's going on in here, in our inner world, really is. In fact, um, listen to this. This is Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard and John Ortberg are two of my primary sources. I'm drawing heavily from them this morning. Um, he writes this in his book, Renovation of the Heart, which is a fantastic book that I'm rereading right now. And he says this. He says, what is running your life at any given moment is your soul. Right? Not external circumstances or your thoughts or your intentions or even your feelings, but your soul. Right? And then he expounds on what the soul is. He says the soul is that aspect of your whole being that integrates and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of the self. It is the life center of human beings. So, all that to say, what is the soul? How has God created you? What are the parts, biblically, with biblical language, that make you up? All right, and so here's, start right here. Uh, first, oops, I can spell, I promise. And that is the will. All right, the will is at the center, the center of who you are. It is at the very core of you, right? Your will is the ability that God's given you to say yes and to say no, the ability to choose, which is a very uh, sacred and spiritual act. In fact, when we, we planted out Mosaic LA, um, and Erwin McManus is the, the lead pastor there, and he would always talk about this. And one of the things that he says is the ability to choose is one of the most sacred acts and worshipful acts that we ever engage in. And every single one of us has that choice, right? Other worlds in the, uh, words for this in the ancient world would be spirit, um, that, that your spirit has the same function. It's the ability to choose uh, what you will, choose this, choose that. Uh, another biblical word for this would be the heart, which the Bible talks about and the Psalms talk about over and over and over again, right? And the heart communicates. It's at the core of who you are, right? It is right at the, at the center, uh, this, ability, this ability to choose. And, and it's part of what makes a human being really special, right, and very unique. It's like there's nobody else out there like you, right? You have this ability, and it's, it's yours. You know, and so, like, as a parent... It's, it's fun watching this, like, actually, like, come to, like, fruition in your kids. Because, like, you know, we have three of them. And when you first have kids, at first they're, like, just cuddly little vegetables, you know. And they just kind of eat and poop and sleep and cry, and that's it, you know. And so they're totally dependent on you. But as they get older, some, at some place, I've had this thought with all three kids, at some point it's like, oh, my goodness, this is a little human being. You know what I mean? The personality starts to come out, and it's like, you know, there's like a mixture of parents, but then there's this element of them that's just them and just their own, and we're getting there. Something, you see it coming as a parent, and, and, and very soon, Jackson, who's our youngest, is going to discover this for himself, because he's about to turn two this week, and right around two, they discover this, and they have a favorite word, right? It, what, what's the favorite word of most two-year-olds? No, that's right, no. And the second favorite word? Mine. Yes, exactly. Why is that? Right? If they're discovering their will, right? They're figuring out, oh, I don't have to do that. Uh-uh. No. And this is mine. You can't have it. 
right? And every single person, um, we have this. Every single one of us has a will. And it's so important to understand this. But what is equally important to understand is that the will is really limited in what it can actually do. Um, People try to make their will do things all the time that our will was just never created to do. In fact, your will was created to be fully surrendered to God. And so, like, if your will was functioning perfectly as it was created, right, you and I would always choose what was right, right? And we would always do what we should, and we would never do what we shouldn't, right? But what we all know is that's not us, (laughs) you know? We constantly make choices that, that rub against us. Right, that take us not towards Jesus, but away from Jesus. Things that we know, nobody has to tell us, are wrong. And, and so there's, this, there's something that has to happen there. Right? And so for our will to actually work properly, it requires that we actually be continually surrendered, surrendering our will to Jesus. That's the first part. Right, the second part of who you are is the mind. Right? And so as we move outward... The, the will is actually a part of the mind. So as we move outward, all of these are encompassing of the others. The, the will is a part of the mind. Biblically, when the, when the Bible talks about the mind, right, it's talking about both your thoughts and your feelings. Right? It all happens up here. Attached to every thought is an emotional charge. Right? Your thinking um, and, and your feeling. And if your mind was working exactly as God created it, right, you would only think of what is true and right and honorable, and noble, and, and God-honoring, but we all know that that's, that's, not, that's not typically how our minds are always working. In fact, um, in any given moment, uh, for no matter how long you've been following Jesus, for many of us, right, there's, there's thoughts that pop up, and there's feelings that we have that we know we probably shouldn't feel that way, uh, but they're there. And in fact, part of the struggle is, when it comes to our mind, I think a lot of us, we're not even fully tuned in to just how junked up uh, our minds can be. You know, and, and, it's, and then every mo- now and then, like in one of those moments, it like comes out, and you're like, oh my gosh, like where did that come from, you know? Uh, it just tends to drift to that place. You know, so I'll never forget when we start a mosaic, it's like the first month that we start a mosaic. So like, tensions are high in our house, right? There's a lot of stress. Um, I think the first two years of mosaic, uh, we were out living off one income, and I believe I made $27,000 a year those two years. So things were tight, you know, and we just didn't know if it was going to work. Um, so all the chips were in the middle, and just tensions were high. And I'll never forget, we were driving to the store, and I had given, I remembered I had given Megan our credit card. So like, hey, we're going to need the credit card to buy groceries. And she's like, I don't have the credit card. And, and, and you know, like, I just kind of snapped. I was like, what do you mean you don't have the credit card? I gave you the credit card. You had one job to do. You know, like, what's the point in carrying a, that duffel bag of a purse if you can't find what you need when we need it? You know, and, and like, we just had at it. And so Megan and I were talking yesterday about this fight. And, and she's like, that was a rough one. I'm pretty sure there were cuss words flying both ways. And, uh, and so in our home, like, it was a fight of pretty epic proportions. And we were just just going, yelling at each other, and, uh, and then things got quiet, you know, but, but the tensions are high, it's like the fight is over, but it's not over, you know, and so I'm just, I'm getting ready for round two, you know, and so I'm just thinking, like, how could she be so irresponsible, like, you're an adult, you know what I mean, like, we have a family, you know, and all this stuff, I'm like building ammunition, you know, and Megan says, I'm sorry, and now, you know, rather than, like, repentance and, like, brokenness, I'm more angry because there's, like, the suggestion that I might actually be wrong, which just makes me angry. And so, you know, I, through grit teeth, say I'm sorry, you know, but I definitely didn't feel sorry yet. 
But we get to the, the grocery store, and, you know, she picks up her purse and we grab our stuff from the middle, and what's sitting right between us the entire time uh, is, is the credit card. You know, in which case I genuinely apologized, you know. But, like, that's just kind of like the way the mind works, right? It doesn't just drift into godliness on its own. In fact, all the times our minds are, are hit with, with misguided thoughts, right, and, and false notions and, and wrong desires. And that's always there. And the problem is your will and my will is not strong enough to overpower a habitually misguided mind. Um, it's not. And so even in those moments, like, I want to love my wife well. I want to serve her selflessly. And then in those moments, you know, it, especially if, if our minds are constantly being misguided and not filled with the right stuff, uh, it just overpowers our will. It's just, it's not possible. And in fact, Jesus, you know, talks about this idea. It's just like, you know, he said, um, you know, uh, if the, the, the inside of a, a tree is not healthy, right, outwardly, right, it can't produce good fruit. Right, what's in here will inevitably find its, way, find its way out here. So if I'm going to live with a healthy soul, right, I need to have not only just a continually surrendered will to Jesus Christ, but an actual, a transformed mind. Right, the third part of, of who you are is your body. Right, and this one, I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, as a pastor and as somebody who's been in ministry for, for a number of years, um, this one, in my observation, is one that we, we underestimate so much when it comes to our, our spiritual formation. Right? This, is, this is so important into who you're becoming. And the reason is your body is like your little kingdom. Right? So every one of us was created in the image of God. And part of that is you were, you were created to exercise dominion. And your body is the first and primary place that you do that in the universe. Your body is the place, the primary place where your will reigns. You know, and again, with little kids, you start to, you start to watch them discover this for themselves. Like their, their limbs are kind of always moving, you know, as soon as they're physically able. But at some point, they're like, hey, I, I, I'm doing this, you know? And then they start to realize, like, with their will, they can tell their hand to move, and it moves. You know, and they tell their, their foot to move, and it moves. And, and, and so with our body, it's, we control it. It's our little kingdom. Of course, the problem is, in our body are all kinds of different habits uh, and appetites that run contrary to what God would have for us all the time. You know, if this was all working right, right, what would happen is our will would be fully surrendered to God. We would be free in that way. And that would then, you know, allow our mind to be in a a holy, God-honoring place that would then direct our body to live like that. But instead, what ends up happening for many of us is our will, apart from Jesus, is enslaved to sin, always wrestling within us, right? Our mind, mind gets junked up, full of all kinds of thoughts that shouldn't be there ideas, misguided assumptions that aren't true, lies, right? And, and our bodies are full of all kind of appetites and desires that don't honor God. And the thing is, some of you know this, um, if you feed those appetites and give in to those desires, uh, inevitably it wreaks destruction on your life. And some of, you, some of you have the scars, the scars to prove it. You know, and for some of us, like, we're in that place. Instead of it working outward in this God-honoring way, we're enslaved 
right? Our minds are where they shouldn't be, and they're stuck, and our bodies are doing things. And it just, what ends up happening is we're becoming fractured and disintegrated in, in, within ourselves. We're fighting with ourselves, right? And so it's like, uh, how many of you have been on a diet? At some point, you've been on a diet along the way? All right, most of us, you're going to get this. Right? It's like when you go on a diet, and you're like, I've got to take care of this. You know, like, I've got weight I need to shed, gravity is winning, and I've got work to do, and, you know, so it's like you throw out the Easy Mac and the frozen pizzas and all that junk. You double your grocery budget so you can buy a healthy, <laughs> so, so expensive. You know, and you fill your fridge with, like, you know, fresh produce and all that stuff, and you do great for a while, right? And you start to see progress, and you feel like you're really rolling, but then you have a really bad week. Stress is high. You got in a fight. And in that moment, even though your will wants to eat kale and Greek yogurt, your body is like, I need me some buffalo wings and fries and a beer. And then your mind goes, you deserve that. You know, like you've had a tough week. You've done great. You know, so just go with it, you know. And that's what ends up happening. And now we're, we're fighting and, and conflicted even, even within our own selves. And the thing is, like, the will is really good at making big decisions, one-time decisions. So our will is really good at, you know, choosing a job and choosing a spouse and choosing where we're going to live, you know, at choosing what church we're going to be a part of. But what your will is really bad at and incapable of doing is overpowering a habitually sinful mind and body. Right, to quote John Ortberg, right, the habits of your body will eat your willpower for breakfast. Right, which, as many of us know, creates all kinds of internal conflict. In fact, you know, Jesus uh, spoke to this very idea. If you remember, if you, if you know the story, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's telling his disciples, stay up and pray with me. Right, stay up, keep watch. Right, and the will in that moment might, might tell you, hey, I should stay up and pray with Jesus. You know, like, I should keep watch. Like, we should stay awake. Jesus is asking this of me, but they can't. They're so, they're so tired. Their body's just like, you need to sleep, you need to sleep, you need to sleep. And Jesus says very interesting words. He says, the spirit, the spirit is willing, right? But the flesh, the flesh is so weak. You know, and, and when we don't realize this, the reason that this is so important, when we don't understand this, it sets you and I up for incredible spiritual frustration. I mean, when it comes to your spiritual journey, like you're just going to beat yourself, you know, with shame. You're going to feel embarrassment. You're going to wonder why in the world this feels so hard. You're going to wonder, you know, like all kinds of things, right? So it's so important that we understand this because your will just was never created to be able to do that. Right? And what we think is we hear a sermon, and what we walk away with oftentimes is like our will is on fire. We're like, I'm going to do it right this time. I'm going to get better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to stop doing this thing. I'm going to start doing this thing. And we mean it, but the problem is in our body and mind are all kinds of habits that are working directly against our will, and our will simply isn't that strong. It was never created to be able to do that. All right, so that's the third one. Fourth one, and we'll move fast on this one, is social. Right, so you were created. You were created with deep, a deep relational identity in a relational context. It's a deep part of who you are. So you are a son or a daughter, right? A brother or a sister, husband or a wife, a father perhaps or a mother, a friend. 
right? And these are a huge part of who you are. You were created in the context of community. You were created for community. And the moment you take that away and isolate yourself and pull yourself out of that, there, there's a part of you that begins to wither very, very quickly. So there's a guy by the name of uh, Robert Putnam. He's done a lot of research on this. And he says, is it statistically, this is crazy, just from a physical perspective, right? If you don't change anything in your life over the next year, but the only thing you do, if you're not in a small group, connected in community, and you get in a small group and get connected in community, it eliminates the statistical chances of you dying in the next year by half, Right? That's how important this is to you physically, which is why as we roll out missio groups, which is our small groups, our motto is join a missio group or die. Right? Right? Stole that from Menlo Park Presbyterian, and we're just running with it. Right? It's a huge part of who you are. You and I really, we can't survive without community. We are created for it. <clears throat> and then lastly, and get this, the last part of who you are is your soul. And your soul encompasses all of this. Right? It is the thing that integrates all of the different facets of who you are. Right? And this is so different, I think, than for what many of us actually think about when we think about the soul. Um, There's a guy by the name of Jeffrey Boyd who's a psychiatric researcher. He's done a lot of research on this. And what he says, it says, most people surveyed that are sitting in church on Sunday morning, when they think about the soul, what most subscribe to is what we call the Looney Tunes theory of the soul, right? And so some of you are going to be too young for this, but anybody grow up watching Looney Tunes? I'm assuming, all right, all right, good. So if you remember, like in Looney Tunes, you'd have like Sylvester the cat and Tweety Bird, you know, and Sylvester's always trying to eat Tweety Bird, you know. It's violent cartoons back then. It really was. They had nothing on us, you know, today. But he, you know, he'd be trying to eat him or whatever, and finally he'd like he'd just about get ready to snatch him, and the camera would zoom out, and Tweety Bird would be holding a rope, and he'd let it go, and like this giant anvil or piano would drop several stories onto Sylvester's head and kill him, right? Violent. And, but what happens then, right? What we saw, right? What happens in that moment? This ghostly kind of figure, right? This vapory, wispy ghost version of Sylvester the cat, right, floats up out of the body. And I think for a lot of us, that's, that's what we think about when we talk about the soul. We think of the soul as like this spirit version, ghost kind of version of ourselves that lives on after we die. But what we have to realize, guys, is your will, when you die, will live on. And your mind will live on. And your body will be resurrected. And your relationships will remain intact. Right, so this is very, very different thinking when it comes to, comes to the soul. Right, the soul is that which integrates all of it. And, this is so important, your soul was created for all of it to be one, to be connected, to be integrated, to all be moving in the same direction. Right, to have integrity, which means wholeness. Right, and for all of that to be moving in the direction of our creator. That's the way we were created. That is, whether you realize it or can articulate it or ever thought of it this way or not, uh, before or not, this is what your will longs for, what your mind longs for, your body, your soul. This is what you hunger for. And when you don't have it, it inevitably ends up 
tearing us apart. And, and I will say this, none of us naturally do that. Which is precisely why our soul is in need of saving. Which is not a popular idea. Right, but why does it need to be saved? Or what does it need to be saved from? It's got to be saved by sin. Because what sin does to every single one of us is that it enslaves the will. Right? And it floods our minds with, with things that shouldn't be there. Thoughts and th- lies. Things that are not true. Right? Sin enslaves the body. Fuels it with all kinds of appetites and habits that don't honor God. And ultimately hurt us and hurt our lives. Right? And sin inevitably, as that's manifested out, it just destroys and messes up our relationships. Right? It tears apart our soul. And all the while, we are becoming fractured within ourselves, disintegrated, right? And, and we're hurting. And it's so important. The, and the biblical language actually talks about this. The Greek word for the soul is suke. And it's a word, by the way, that we get psychology from. And, and James writes this. This is so big. James writes, the double-minded person is unstable. And he says double-minded, but the word there is soul. Right? That person with a split soul, with a fractured soul. I mean, get this. Jesus, if you remember, Jesus gets approached and he's asked, what is the most important commandment? You know, and, and so he is boiling down and summing up hundreds of commands and laws, their entire law and everything that's been built around it for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And what does he say? He says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength and with all your soul. And to, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Jesus, this is not accidental. Right? Jesus knew you and he knew me better than we know ourselves. We were created for this. We were created to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength, all of our soul, and to love our neighbor as ourself. But by nature, by nature, we fight this. And not only do we fight it, we actually start to justify it. And this is, this is so interesting. Dave O'Reilly, he's a professor of psychology at Duke. He's written about this. He wrote a really fascinating book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. How we lie to everyone, especially ourselves, right? And it's not a Christian book, purely secular psychological perspective, but he actually talks about how this all becomes disintegrated. It's, it's one example, but it's a great example. And, and he documents how widespread our tendency is towards cheating, self-deceit, self-centeredness, and lying. Just how widespread that really is. And he, he discovers that you and I, we have two primary motivations, right? The first is that we want stuff, and we tend to be pretty selfish about it, right? And so we want that thing, whatever that thing is, romance, relationship, accolade, fame, security, peace, romance, whatever. And we want that thing, and given the right circumstances, we're willing to fudge on the truth to get it, to make moral compromises. But we have another motivation, and that is we still need to think that we're pretty good people, Right, that we are generally like respectable, admirable, just all around swell people. And so, obviously, these two motives are totally in conflict with one another. And this is what he writes. This is what he writes. He says, This is where our amazing cognitive flexibility comes in play. Thanks to this human skill, as long as we cheat by only a little bit, we can benefit from cheating and still view ourselves as marvelous human beings. This is what he writes. 
And what he calls our amazing cognitive flexibility, the Apostle Paul calls the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Right? So, so interesting. And it's, and it's, one, it's one little example. Right? But it's, it's so, so good. And he writes this. He goes, he goes, over the course of many years of teaching, I've noticed that there typically seems to be a rash of deaths of students' relatives at the end of the semester. And it happens most in the weeks before final exams and before papers are due. Guess which relative it is that most often dies. Professor Mike Adams at Eastern Connecticut State University has shown that grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before a midterm and 19 times more likely to die before a final exam. Worse, grandmothers of students who are not doing well in class are at even higher risk. Failing students are 50 times more likely to lose poor grandma than non-failing students. The greatest predictor of mortality in the United States among senior citizens ends up being their grandchildren's GPA. Right? Now, what's so big on this, what's so interesting, is that because we are connected, integrated people, right, one act of dishonesty is not an isolated event. Right? It affects the way that we view and understand ourselves. You know, and, and once you do it once, it becomes amplified, so like exponentially more likely that we'll do it again in some other way. You know, and so it's like when it, you guys, we've all been on diets, so we know how this works. It's like once you cheat once, right, how much easier it is the next time to be like, oh, man, that ice cream, though. You know, I'll just, I'll just grab another six-pack and milk this baby for a month. Yeah, right. You know, and it just starts to snowball the other direction. So it's like the moment that we make a moral compromise, it's like there's something almost in our mind that almost on a subconscious level thinks, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm, I'm a good person, so it must not be that big of a deal. Right? And the moment you do it once, you know, the, the, the one time you, you fudge on the resume, right, makes it so much more likely the next time that you're going to cheat on the income taxes. That you're going to say, it was the traffic, when it wasn't the traffic. You say, well, I sent that email. You didn't get it. That's so weird when you didn't send that email. Right? And it starts to snowball the other way. And what ends up happening is we are now fighting within ourselves. Right? We are warring within ourselves. In fact, this is really interesting. This is what what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.11. He says, dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which Wage war with your soul. Right, so you've got to hear this. Right, you've got to, got to hear this. It's so, he is telling us something that is so incredibly profound about ourselves, and that is, is that sin, it kills your soul. In time, it, it does, it kills you. Now, I'm gonna, I'll tell you, as a pastor, I see this all the time. Right, and people come into a space like this, and, and they sing, and they might even put their hands up. You know, not many of us do that. It's a very bold move, you know. We're, we're very white in that sense, right? And you listen to a sermon, and you volunteer, and do these things very outwardly that you're hoping is going to bring some sense of life. But what's really going on behind the scenes, Monday through Saturday, is this internal war and habitual compromises in character, all right? Making compromises with your thought life. It's looking at things you shouldn't be looking at. You're holding on to bitterness and anger and refusing to forgive, right? All kinds of habits in the body and just giving over to the, the sinful appetites of the flesh, 
Uh, that was a very religious way of saying that. But you, this is happening, and it just it tears people apart. It's almost like we think that if we do enough of good stuff on this side of the scale, it'll balance out the other ways that we're making compromises. But what it's doing is it's just it's ripping us up. It's just, I, I watch it tear people apart. It, that works for a little while. And inevitably what ends up happening is it catches up to them. And for some people it does in a very dramatic way, right? And they lose a job because of moral compromises they made or they lose a relationship or their marriage, they lose the marriage, right? But for more people, it's, it's a slow loss. And over time, gradually, living in this duplicitous, fractured, disintegrated way, it steals their life and they lose their passion. And over time, they lose their sense of purpose and identity. Over time, they lose any semblance of real, vibrant connection to God. They die slowly. They die long before they take their last breath. And some of you are there right now, which is why I'm so passionate about this, and it's so important that you get this. It is killing you. And it doesn't have to be that way. Right? And in the process, you're expending all kinds of energy trying to present yourself as doing so much better than you really are. Right? On Sunday morning, you get dressed up and you smile. How are you? Good. Hey, hey, hey. Right? Monday morning, doing the exact same thing. Right? And, and it's exhausting. Right? It's a reason that like job interviews, you know, or, or like parties where you got to like work the room and network, or it can be so exhausting. Right? Because you're trying to present yourself and win people over. And, and it oftentimes present yourself as you... As you as you better than you are, right? Dallas Willard often talked about this is part of what makes kids like so awesome, like why we just love kids because like part of the great things about, one of the great things about little kids is they, they haven't, he says they haven't learned to manage their face yet, right? And so like you can, I can look at Jackson and I know exactly what he's thinking, you know? It's like he is thinking smash, you know? Like I want to throw that through that window, you know? Or I want to jump off the fireplace, you know? Or whatever. You know, you can see it all over his face. But then as we get older, we learn how to manage our face. And to be dishonest and deceitful and sometimes do things purely out of selfish gain, and we can still present ourselves as being quite religious and faithful. And we call that growing up, but the Bible calls that death. It's not the way that we were ever created to be. And then in the words of the Apostle Paul, there is now sin in your members is the way that he puts it. It's just habitual sin. It is now a part of who you are in your flesh, and it rips us apart. And this is the lost soul. This is the ruined soul. And just so you know, it's also the reason that six years ago we started this thing. Right? This, there, is, there is no greater work than a soul saved. Right? Jesus said it is the, the utmost important. He said, what, what good is it for you if you get everything you ever dreamed of, but you forfeit your soul? Right? It is the, the, the most incredible work that God does, but only one power can save a soul. There's only one way. Right? And there are words in the Psalms that just seem to resonate with the human story that we can't get away from. Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That is, I shall not live as a slave to my mind. Right, overcome with the habits and appetites of my body. I will not be in want. Right, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Right, this is the work that he is in. Right, one of my favorite things he ever said. He 
He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, because living a disintegrated, fractured life is exhausting. He says, come to me, all of you who are, are overwhelmed with all that. He says, I will give you rest. Right? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. So here's, here's what I want to do. Um, band, you can come up. Um, you know, summer is coming, and this is generally from a pastoral perspective. It's usually when you, like, downshift, you know, and things start to slow down. And most of us will be going probably on vacation at some point. And, and I think for many of us, if we just kind of succumb to the natural rhythms of Lincoln, Nebraska, it becomes a time where we kind of step out. Uh, not just physically, but spiritually. You know, and take the, the foot off the gas and, and just kind of slack for a while. Right? And then we'll get back into faithfulness in the fall. You know? and, and what I want to challenge us to do as a, as a community of faith, especially with these next two months as we go into the summer, is rather than leaning out to actually lean in. Right? And to use this as an opportunity to become more attuned to what's going on in here. To allow Jesus to have access to those parts of our lives that maybe, just maybe, up until now, we have not allowed him access to. Things that we have been tooling around with and playing around with, and we know nobody has to tell us it's eating us up. It's not bringing life, that's for sure. Right, and so what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to go into, into a time of, of worship as we do uh, every week. And I want to just invite you in a participatory way that if God is speaking to you this morning to not just walk out on that, Right? Don't be thinking just yet about lunch. I know I went long. I apologize. It's been a month. It's been building in me for a while. Right? But to lean in. If God is, is, if there is something, and you just know in your spirit that this is something I need to surrender into the hands of Jesus to do that. Right? Maybe it's your will. Right? Maybe you're wrestling with pride, with ego. Maybe if you're honest, you would say, you know, when it comes to my will and choosing, uh, I actually don't really, haven't desired for a while to actually do the right thing in this area or that area. In fact, I feel like my spirit, my soul, my heart, my will is actually moving away from Jesus. I'm drifting rather than moving towards him. Right? Or maybe for you, it's, it's your mind. Right? And you know what's been going on up here, and only you, and you know it's not good. Right? Maybe it is you've been refusing to forgive somebody, holding on to resentment, to anger. Right? Maybe you've been, you've been fantasizing, seeing things, watching things that you know you shouldn't be watching. You know, or maybe it's in your body, you know, and you've been giving in to, to appetites that are there, fueling habits that you know are not healthy or God-honoring. Right? You need to just step into that. Or maybe, maybe for you it's a relationship. You know, and there's a relationship, and you know that some of the stuff going on in that relationship is not right. Maybe there's reconciliation that needs to take place between you and somebody. And you need to initiate the conversation. Maybe it's just a relationship that you know needs to end today. Or maybe it's a little bit of everything. You know, maybe you've never actually crossed the line of faith. And we're, you know, we're going to be having a baptism here in the next two months. And maybe for you, it's like, you know what? I've never actually tangibly, intentionally crossed that line of faith and said, Jesus, I am yours. Whatever that is for you, I just want to invite you in a tangible, concrete way to write it on that piece of paper as we worship and pin it right to the cross and leave it there. And it is not, just so you know, a commitment to be perfect. It is a commitment to be surrendered and to invite Jesus into that thing. 
All right, so if you want to go ahead, Mosaic, if you would, if you'd stand, uh, we're going to close and do this together.